Hi, and welcome to the Active Travel Podcast, a brand new podcast brought to you by the Active Travel Academy, which is an academic think tank on all things cycling, walking and micromobility. It's part of the University of Westminster in London and works in collaboration with folks from inside and outside the university. And that's people like me. I'm Laura Laker, an active travel journalist working with the Active Travel Academy on this podcast, among other projects. And this is the first of a two-parter on data in active travel. The Active Travel podcast is joined by David MacArthur, who is a senior lecturer in urban studies at the University of Glasgow. David's with us today to talk about two pieces of research. The first is using crowdsourced data from Strava Metro to establish cycling patterns. And the second is using spare CCTV capacity to identify pedestrian volumes and movement, which is not as big brother as it seems, David assures me. So welcome, David. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So you specialise in big data around transport and urban analytics. Can you just tell us a bit about how that works? I'm based at the Urban Big Data Centre. So this was a centre funded uh, a few years ago with the idea that the UK wasn't making the most of the big data revolution. Our job was to try to establish ways in which new forms of data could be used to address uh, substantial social science questions. So my stream of work was in transport. Um, We were trying to look at what data sets are out there what can they tell us about uh, our transport network and how to improve our cities? Uh, and what might the limitations of this sort of data be? People were quite, there was a hype curve where people were very excited it was going to change the world. So we were trying to be a bit critical to those uh, ideas. And people get very excited about new tech developments as shiny new toys, kind of. But it's not always as wonderful as you might think. So can you tell us where transport data is right now and where it's going? Uh, and presumably you're focusing on active travel. It's quite interesting. There is amazing data out there. It's not always accessible, though. One thing we tried to do in the centre was to prize it out of the hands of data owners, but that's not always so successful. Sometimes there's legal regulatory licensing issues with the data. So if some local authority has used a commercial product or ordnance survey data, they can't necessarily share that data with a third party afterwards. There's also issues of perhaps it's commercially sensitive, So with a deregulated bus network, for instance, uh, the data may be held by the operator of the bus service. Uh, So it might not be available easily to uh, outside researchers, which is a shame because it would be nice to have better data on who takes the bus and where do they go. But it's commercially sensitive information. So lots of great data, but the governance issues tend to pose far more challenges than the technical issues of analysing it. Obviously, there's going to be privacy issues around people's data, and especially if it contains demographic data or even personal data. So you've got to be very careful about who gets that, haven't you? Absolutely. We would definitely want uh, the data owners to protect the data subjects, uh, and it's a legal requirement. Uh, After GDPR especially, it's, uh, well, we always had data protection legislation, but I think GDPR sharpened people's focus on this idea. But some of the data's... um, I don't think needs to be shielded quite as much. So uh, cycle counter data of how many people go past a particular point in time. Uh, I'm not sure it's so sensitive, but certain people are not happy to share it or they're worried that something might be done with it that they don't like. Really? Cycle counter data? Numbers? Yes, I've had some arguments with local authorities because they don't want to release it, um, even though it's six people past this point in an hour. So I think it's as far (laughs) removed from personal data as you might be able to get. That's interesting. 
I remember writing an article last year, I think it was, collecting cycle counter data from around the UK. And I got maybe a handful, and those are just the visible ones with the totem poles. But it was quite hard to get hold of stuff. I was quite surprised. Um, And I think I was working on it for a few months, actually, partly because uh, there were a number of issues. Some of the cycle counters broke down and some of the London ones have broken down. So I was kind of waiting on them. But also, like you say, it's quite hard to get information from people. And that's just the ones with the totem poles and the numbers on that are visible. And I guess there must be a lot more embedded in pavements that you just never see. Yes, there are. There's some hidden. So the you, the council will have data on them, but maybe you get it, maybe not. Uh, but it, it's a shame not to have that data available to for people to use. So you're working on both these projects, the pedestrian project and the cycling project. And that was pre-lockdown. And obviously life changed for everyone since then. People stopped re- moving around as much. And I'm just wondering, obviously, your uh, the scope of the project is changing as the transport environment changes. And you wrote a couple of blogs about this, didn't you? Uh, the phenomenon of COVID and the changes that are happening. And I'm just wondering how much you've changed what you're doing since then. It's been a really interesting time for transport data because we've often had this fragmented ownership of the data sets, trouble having access to them. Suddenly, though, everyone needed data on who was where and who was moving where and what modes of transport they were using. Uh, it's been interesting to see that the tech giants, Apple and Google, have been the ones stepping in to provide consistent data across the UK. But a bit of a black box in terms of how does it go from raw data into these aggregates that they're publishing. But this has been used to formulate policy now. So we might be a bit concerned that if we had our own data and we had a national data service for transport data and it had all been there in a consistent way, we could easily have pulled up uh, the information that we needed. But at the moment, as you said, it's a big job to try and gather all of it and uh, other people have stepped in to provide other versions of it. So it's uh, it's interesting. And where's this Apple and Google data coming from? I believe Google's using their location service, which senses where people are through combination of GPS and uh, Wi-Fi, so looking at what Wi-Fi networks are nearby. I believe Apple is using uh, where people are searching for directions about. So from that, they then infer something about what the purpose of the travel was and and where it is. And then they've published these mobility reports uh, that you might have seen uh, getting some media coverage about uh, how activity at different locations has changed over time. Which is very valuable information at the moment, but it's unfortunate we don't necessarily know all the details about uh, how robust is it and is it excluding certain types of people from the analysis. People without mobile phones. Yes, it's one of the key challenges for uh, big data. So uh, it could be people without mobile phones or the privacy conscious people who've opted out of sharing this sort of information. Uh, Apple data, it's a particular subset of people that use Apple products. So if you formulate policy based on a subset of people using a technology, uh, who are you excluding and, and who's not being seen? Yeah, transport poverty is a big issue, and we know a lot of inequalities are being exacerbated by the crisis, and Apple products are extremely expensive. Not everyone has a smartphone even, so it's fascinating. Um, So can you tell us about how your crowdsource cycling project works? Uh, One of the first data sets we acquired at the Urban Big Data Centre was from Strava, so you may be familiar with going on, you have some physical activity, usually running or cycling, and you log it, and then it gives you some information about 
how fast you were and did you beat people. Uh, mm -hmm. Strava takes this raw GPS data, it matches it onto the road network, and then they provide uh, an aggregate data product uh, where you can't identify individuals, but you get information about how many people are on each road at different times of day and what are the origins and destinations that people are moving between. So we've been working with this for several years. What we've been trying to do is to say, what can you get out of the data? What are the limits of the data? Um, what are the biases in the data? So again, this is another example where probably not all cyclists are logging all of their trips on Strava. So whatever you see in the Strava data, you have to think this is for a certain type of person. So mm -hmm. men dominate the use of Strava. Uh, yeah. Men are overrepresented in cycling anyway, but they're even more overrepresented in Strava. So you have to be careful with your conclusions that you don't end up designing things for men who use Strava uh, and try and design it for all kinds of people. And and then there's the issue of including people who don't cycle yet, but we might like to encourage to cycle, but they're not in the data. So we one thing, or a couple of things we tried to do, one was to compare it to cycle counter data to see how do the flows that pass a particular point on Strava match up with the flows that count everyone. Uh, the evidence there is not bad. Uh, it gets the order of magnitude. You can certainly pick out the, the busy versus the quiet locations. It's not especially accurate in giving you precise numbers. Uh, we believe you can probably monitor trends with it over time, of whether locations becoming busier or quieter. Uh, so we, we did some work doing that. Uh, many other academics have also done similar work trying to understand what the what the biases are and how well it represents it. We've then gone on to look at if you put in new infrastructure, uh, what impact does it have on cycling flows? Um, so we have a, a couple of papers which look at that. The interesting thing, maybe it's obvious, but it's nice to measure it, is that it seems that it needs to be uh, infrastructure of a certain quality. So if you have segregated infrastructure, you can get something like a 12 to 18% increase in the number of people using that uh, that that road if it's some sort of bus lane that you let cyclists cycle in and you call it bike infrastructure it doesn't seem to be particularly popular and doesn't seem to have uh, a measurable effect so it, it's nice to be able to put a magnitude on what are the effects of doing these things and what is worth doing and what isn't worth doing mm. you mentioned a national data center i'm just thinking about the problem of who you're capturing with this data and the fact that there's different data out there that may have those people into tech. Um, they might be using it, or those, or people who want to ride fast, they might be using Strava. But then you've got people in families or older people who don't really have the time or inclination to be faffing around with apps for every element of their lives. But there's potential, perhaps. Um, you mentioned um, National Data Center, perhaps suggesting that there could be a collection of some of this information and a better way to map out where routes might need to be, for example. It would be good to have that. I think we're making progress in that direction. Um, the Urban Big Data Centers helped a bit. So we've gathered some of this data together. Also, organizations like Cycling Scotland and in Scotland, at least trying to do some of this work to pull all this data together. But the, the other point you mentioned there is whether it's comparable between different areas. Uh, if you have different sensor technologies, if the maintenance regimes aren't consistent across places, so you have sensors breaking or giving faulty readings, uh, it's not necessarily easy to have something you can compare between locations or over time. But at least having it all in one place so that researchers can go to it and see what's happening, I think, is useful. 
Uh, it's something we try to help uh, bring about. And then if one thing breaks, a physical counter breaks, or if you're not capturing every kind of person, then you have other elements of the data as a backup in a way. Yes. Um, interestingly, and maybe it's the typical story, th there's much more progress made on this for counting cars uh, and vehicles uh, that's taken a lot more seriously. Um, and, and there is much better data available on collating all the road counter data so we can see what the cars are doing. Uh, but it, it would be nice to know what the people are doing. And we measure what we care about. And historically, we've cared about car traffic, prioritising that, reducing delays for drivers in this country, haven't we? And cycling and also walking, and more so walking, have really been forgotten in this piece. And another thing you're doing with the Big Data Centre is this pedestrian CCTV project where you're not spying on people, <laughs> but you are, you're looking at um, pedestrian volumes and pedestrian movements in Glasgow. Yes, very very keen to start with the definitely not spying on people. Uh, this is some work led by my colleague Mark Livingston. I've been working with him on it for a while now. We wanted to look at how can we measure what the pedestrians are doing and what's available. Uh, and there are a few sparse sensors which count pedestrians and there wasn't much else. Uh, and it didn't cover the areas of Glasgow that we were interested in at the time. So we said, well, Machine vision is a lot better now. Uh, we can use machines to count people uh, and objects and images. Uh, there's cameras all around Glasgow and the CCTV network. So we said, uh, do you think uh, if we go to the council and discuss it with them, it might be possible to do something with that? After lots of negotiation and safeguards and ethical approval at the university, we, uh, we did a pilot study where we put a machine that sits in the secure CCTV suite uh, controlled by uh, the council. It goes to four cameras when we started. It moves them to a particular position, snaps an image. Uh, the image is then run through this algorithm, which counts the number of people. Then the image gets discarded, uh, and out of it we get how many people were spotted at this location at this particular point in time. I just love the idea of all the CCTV cameras positioned around Glasgow. You've got about 30 as we speak, haven't you? That's up from four at the beginning. Yes. I just love the idea of them sort of sitting there and then every 15 minutes or half an hour, you're able to take control of them and then turn them around and take a photo. They just uh, Then they just resume their normal life. There's something a bit James Bond about it. Yeah, sad sadly, every, every time I walk past one of our cameras, I check my watch to see if it's due to move, but it never has been so far. Now we're stuck at home more. So I've, I have been desperate to see it, see it move around. This was another challenge we had to address in the project because the, the cameras are used for security. So we, we yeah. have to adjust our approach so that it won't swing around if someone's using it and, and end up missing something that the mm. operators are trying to watch. Yeah. So we, we were really keen to try and use open software, free software, not interfere with what the camera's main purpose is, but to get something useful out of it. Uh, I, originally, it was nothing to do with COVID, but now it's become... Uh, even more useful to have this uh, daily report that we get on what are pedestrians doing, how many are in different locations, and how's that changing over time? Are there areas that need to be watched? And is that because of capacity issues on the pavements? Yeah, some of the locations, we, we've been trying to think of this as a social distancing problem, but certainly in some of the locations, once the counts get over a certain amount, uh, it suggests people are probably going to be too close together because the pavements are smaller or the area the camera's looking at isn't that large. And if there's dozens of people visible on the frame at one point, then uh, they, may not, they may not be uh, maintaining social distance.
Mm. Although you, you still can't tell that's necessarily a problem. It, it may be uh, maybe people in the same household. It might be people who are compliant. So it's it, it's still interesting, though, to see uh, and to spot the patterns. So when you get the nice weather, the warm days, the dry days, you see upticks in the the number of people out and about. So it's it's quite interesting to see how the how the patterns change. And I think useful in planning pavement space potentially if there are too many people. Uh, because it gets to the point where there's so many people on the pavement, it becomes impossible to socially distance. Yes, one of my colleagues, Nick Vess, came up with some very clever method to extract from the map all the pavement widths uh, for the whole of the UK. So uh, we, we were looking at that and then trying to map where is there maybe space for social distancing and where isn't it possible and perhaps we need to have an intervention. Uh, the work was done a few days after we did it. Esri released a similar product. So uh-huh. I like to say that we beat them. We beat them with our open source transparent way of doing it. <laughs> that was reported in the um, in a couple of newspapers, wasn't it? It was. So we should have pushed ours better because we did it first. <laughs> and we were clear about how we did it uh, and set out exactly how you... Uh, go from the uh, OS data, uh, how you process it and what comes out and what it looks like. But extremely valuable information to have if you're telling people to stay two metres apart and it's a very narrow pavement, then you have to do something about it. Yeah, it makes quite a strong case for action on pavement space and things like pavement parking, perhaps, or closing roads to through traffic. Absolutely. And I think it's helpful to have the data on pavement widths, to have information about where are the pedestrians, when are the pedestrians there, and then to use that to inform decisions about uh, where might we need to abolish on-street parking or close a road or or take some other kind of action. There are actually very few ways of counting pedestrians, aren't there? There There aren't counters in the same way that there are for cycling. There are fewer of them around um, and they some of them are used more with a view to looking at how many shoppers are out and about. So maybe we can get some data on shopping streets, but we want data on, on other places as well. Um, some of the other counters are placed at uh, very busy points to monitor what's going on. But if we want a picture of the whole city, then this was a sensor network which existed. The cameras were there. They weren't being monitored all the time. So being able to use them to extract this useful data was uh, we thought was quite a good idea and it's something that can be done elsewhere the the software is open source the methods are clear um, it's something any local authority could potentially implement we also did some validation work i should say checking that the accounts the machine was producing uh, actually represented how many people were in the image and it, it gives a very good um, very good performance Better than we expected, because we thought, mm. oh, well, when it rains, probably it's not going to work. Or if the lighting's poor, it might not work. But we didn't really see that. It, it performed pretty well under all these different conditions. So. so it was originally intended to provide some before and after data, some baseline data, ahead of some pedestrian realm improvements in Glasgow, right? Yes, Glasgow's got a very large public realm improvement project uh, called the Avenues Project. Uh, I think it's a hundred and. £14 million they're spending on upgrading several of the key streets in Glasgow, uh, particularly active travel focused. So they want more people walking, more people cycling, uh, fewer cars on the road. Often, though, they only think to measure afterwards what's happened. uh, And it's hard to do an evaluation if you only see what happened afterwards. So we try to get in there at the start to say, well, let's start counting now so that after we can see what does it look like and hopefully demonstrate the value that you can get from making these improvements. Uh, They will certainly know about what happened to the cars and 
we, we don't want that to lead to people's thinking about what's happening to cars and congestion. Let's present them with there's an X percent increase in pedestrians and a Y percent increase in cyclists. And, and that's beneficial. Yeah, well, it's cheaper than having people on the street counting. It's much cheaper. Um, there, there is some of that that goes on. So there's some manual counts done in Glasgow. I think now they, they have someone watch a camera um, and count the number of people manually. But this is a, a much more scalable approach. I believe some local authorities also take videos of a point and then they ship the video off to some other country and someone on a very low wage sits and manually watches hours and hours of video and, and notes down the, the number of people. So mm. this is a, a much more scalable, cheaper solution. And how do you see this being used going forward? Um, it would be nice if, uh, ideally, if local authorities installed it and made the data easily available, then any researcher doing anything on transport or uh, infrastructure evaluation would have the have the data available. At the moment, we're still hoping that we can gather our baseline data for our evaluation project, but uh, the data certainly now seems more useful for a, a COVID response and trying to understand what's happening. Um, it will also be interesting this is probably the first time the government's discouraged the use of public transport. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to uh, all those, uh, well, all those trips that would have been made by public transport. Uh, are we going to see them go on to cycling? Are we going to see them uh, become pedestrians? Are they going to work from home? So at least in Glasgow now, we will have the car data. We'll have maybe some bus data. Uh, we'll have pedestrian and cyclists. So hopefully get a much clearer picture of what's going on. Mm. When you get data on, on car traffic levels increasing or decreasing, there's sometimes comparable data on cycling and walking, and presumably they come from fewer data sets? Uh, we often try to find out where these come from, and we never seem to get anywhere. So I have a colleague who spent some time trying to find out the source of some of this official data that was presented, but he wasn't successful. Many emails and many, yes, I'll get back to you, but we, we don't know where they come from. So I'm also a bit puzzled at some of where some of these statistics come from and what the data is. Really? You might be right that it's, yes. <laughs> if you try digging, it's not you don't always uh, get to the bottom. So it may be that it's uh, the cycle counter data that they sort of aggregate and come up with something. Um, it's uh, it's not clear, though. Uh, fascinating. But it's easier to understand where the car data comes from, presumably. I'm imagining there's more counters out there and that they're more accurate. Yes, many more counters and it's better documented where they are. And there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, much, it's much clearer what's happening with that. So who documents the car figures? I think Department for Transport has collected a bunch of the trunk road sensor network, um, even for Scotland, which is Transport Scotland doing it separately. Uh, and then local authorities also possess some for their traffic signal control systems. Uh, they may have separate sensors. So we, we've also looked at some of that. Glasgow, thankfully, makes at least some of its uh, detector data open. So we've, we've done some analysis yeah. of looking at what's happening to uh, road traffic in different places. But the national statistics are sometimes somewhat of a mystery. And again, the big tech companies may know better because Google can detect where you're going and they also have the ability to do some mode detection of what uh, what mode of transport you're using. So they may have a better idea of what the, of what the mode use is in different areas. Do you think there's any responsibility there for the tech companies to release this data anonymized? They've released some of the aggregate data, so you can get the overall trends and mobility, but it's, uh, we don't know what's, uh, what's happening underneath. And sometimes that's for good reason, because yeah. the, the location data from smartphones can be very disclosive. So it's, um, 
it's it's something that you, they do have to be careful with. But it might be nice to have the detailed methodology on how is it all processed from raw data up to these indicators that they provide. Yeah, the track and trace system or the proposed system has raised a lot of questions about privacy and phone companies giving people's data out to government and the ethical implications of that. It's it's such a difficult one because the data can be so useful um, for all sorts of purposes. It, it can help us really do transport in new ways if we can understand people's door-to-door journeys. At the moment, the data gets fragmented between we have one data set for trains, which is patchy. We have some stuff on cycling. We have some stuff on walking. But we don't necessarily understand if someone starts their day, they go and do their different things, different modes, and how does that connect up? And how might we reconfigure things to get more sustainable choices? But then from this data, you can identify where people live, where they work, where their children go to school, all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't want being made available easily. So the, it, it's a very interesting trade-offs there about what people are, uh, what people are willing to share and also who they share with. Uh, they, we share a lot with the tech companies, um, often unknowingly, um, but Sometimes I think when government does it, it's uh, it's done in a more explicit way and then people maybe react a bit more to it. But they, they aren't necessarily aware of the amount of information they're already disclosing. But I don't know, I don't know what the solution to all of that will be. It's a commodity, our data, which is why we have free apps like Strava, though they've now introduced a subscription. But that information is valuable. And presumably you pay for Strava Metro, cities like Glasgow. We do. I think they're currently looking at how their uh, model's going to work. Uh, they've traditionally been quite helpful. I think because they've been founded by real cycling enthusiasts, they have had a bit of a social mission with their data to try to make it available and try to improve cycling uh, around the world. So th- they've taken quite a different approach, I think, from the other companies. They, they've seen it as less of a money-making tool and a bit more of a campaigning tool. Uh, so y- we do pay for it, uh, but it's not as expensive as it, they might be able to, to to make it. Another thing you've been looking at is higher bike data since lockdown. I think that was in Edinburgh and Just Eat Bikes. Yes, they had some open data, so I thought I'll have a quick look at it and see uh, what patterns that we, we can see in it. And that was fascinating, wasn't it? Because just prior to lockdown, when people were being told work from home, the number of people were doing on those bikes actually increased. But then there was good weather at the same time. That, so that was potentially a bit, well, which one was it? But then after lockdown, obviously, the number of trips decreased, but the distance of the trips and the proportion of round trips increased, which suggests that they were le- leisure trips, which is fascinating. Yeah, I think this is... a. Uh... The weather has been very interesting because as soon as we had lockdown, uh, the weather got fantastic. So it it made some of the analysis a bit more difficult. Uh, I've been working on some statistical modeling recently, trying to strip out these effects so we can monitor the underlying trends a bit better. But the higher bike stuff has raised this question about, are these people, perhaps people who didn't cycle before, are people looking at the empty roads and thinking, oh, maybe I could try cycling? Uh, And if they're doing that, Will they keep doing it afterwards? Will they get a taste for it? Uh, There's been reports of bike sales going up. Uh, There's these suggestions that higher bikes are being used in new ways. So uh, it it will be very exciting to see, is this something that's going to cause a shift in the number of people that are cycling or is it going to uh, die away afterwards? Which in part will depend on the policy response and whether these nice new temporary cycling lanes that have gone up everywhere become something more permanent or whether it's, it's going to go back to the cars afterwards. 
I guess some of the cycling data you're amalgamating is going to be useful for that perhaps pre and post? Yes, unfortunately, our Strava data comes in quarterly <laughs> deliveries. So we have up until the end of March at the moment. So we just got the start of the action of lockdown. Uh, we're waiting on July when we get our next quarterly uh, delivery, when we can perhaps start to track a bit more uh, where were the journeys coming from, where were they going to, which areas became busier and quieter, and was there more leisure cycling and, and what was going on. So it should be quite interesting. You really need something a bit more agile in these times because things are changing so quickly. I mean, since the end of March, the world's changed beyond recognition, really, hasn't it? The government has told councils they should be doing emergency cycle lanes, making road space for people on bikes and on foot, which we never heard before. And that's statutory guidance. Yes, one of the benefits of big data is supposed to be we get it quickly, uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. So with our CCTV camera data, we get it daily, so we have a very up-to-date picture. Strava, they have the data, but they just haven't supplied it to their data users. Uh, They're currently re-engineering the way they supply their data, so I think they're not wanting to get into a position of doing custom deliveries and custom cuts. So they've said, well, look, just stick to the schedule and wait until July and then you'll get your you'll get your new data. So we're like children counting down to Christmas now, <laughs> waiting, on, <laughs> waiting on our new Strava data to play with. <laughs> but the, the time seems to be flying through the lockdown. So it's... Um... Yeah, our whole concept of time has changed, hasn't it? Which day is it? What time is it? Where am I? It certainly has. But I'm very interested to see this idea of whether people do change their transport habits and will people who used to drive, who've maybe tried a break for leisure during lockdown, will they be tempted to say, oh, well, I could take it to work or I've tried out the route to work in my leisure time. It was all right. Maybe the infrastructure was better than I thought. Um, will they keep doing that? Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks, David, for talking. It's fascinating to hear from you and uh, to hear what's going on with big data and active travel. And you have to keep us posted what's happening in July with that Strava data. Yes, that's the uh, that's the date we're counting down to. Thank you for having me. I was happy to discuss talk transport data. You've been listening to the Active Travel Podcast. You can find us online on our website at blog.westminster.ac.uk forward slash ATA forward slash podcast. We're on most podcasting hosts and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at active underscore ATA. Let us know what you think. Drop us a tweet or an email at activetravelacademy at westminster.ac.uk. Thanks for listening. Until next time.